Hey, before we jump into the message today, I have a couple pieces of family business that I want to share with you. And if you're new around here, we do this from time to time, just talk and kind of huddle up and have a little family meeting every now and then about stuff. And so we just, if you're you know new, new you just join in on this. Uh, the first thing is... Just wanted to give you, uh, just let you know that our family, uh, Team Teixeira, that was how we call our little clan, is, has expanded a bit. We have uh, taken a, a five-year-old little boy into our home from the foster care system. His name is Silvio. Yeah, it's pretty fun. We weren't pregnant, but we did get a five-year-old. So... Um, yeah, his name is Silvio, and some of you have seen him kind of rolling with our crew, and uh, if you haven't yet, you will. You cannot miss him. He will make himself known. Um, he, he, and things are going well. Just some of you have asked, and I appreciate that. Going, he's incorporating in. Some moments are better than other moments, right, hun? Um, she's just smiling at me. Uh, but uh, a couple things on that. One thing we're really excited about is that this church has such a heart for... Uh, for at-risk kids, and in particular foster children, that we just feel so good about not only welcoming Silvio into our family, but also into this larger family. So thank you for for loving him, um, for those of you who already have, and for those of you who will. Um, and also we will definitely continue to take your prayers for him as he kind of incorporates in and feels safe and loved and comfortable, and also for for our crew as we adjust to new life. So so thank you for that and good days ahead there. That's the first thing. Second thing is I want to give you an update on our worship pastor search process. And actually this is a process that has just begun. If you remember back in January when we announced transition, I really believed at that point that as a congregation, we just needed some time. We needed to take a break and, and, and find some space and let the dust settle a bit. And, and really just think and pray and talk about who our next person would be. And, uh, and that's been a really fun season. We've had a lot of different people here, some guest worship leaders. But now Easter has come and gone, and I think we're on to the next season, and that is moving forward to find the person that God wants for Cedar Mill. And so uh, this morning, in between services, actually, the search team gathered to pray and talk and discuss and, and sort of banter around what are we looking for in a worship pastor here at Cedar Mill? And actually, that's been the number one question that I've been asked. A lot of, uh, of you have had conversations with me about this topic, and they've been really helpful and insightful. But the biggest question is, what are we looking for? And so coming out of those conversations and also some conversations with our staff and the elders, I, I wrote some thoughts down, and it kind of turned into like a mini novel. It's like a three-and-a-half-page paper that I just titled Thoughts on What We're Looking For in a Worship Pastor, and that's exactly what it is. And, and, and I liked it. I thought it was just genius material, but the elders thought it was decent enough to put out. And so we're, I'm just making that available at the, at the Welcome Center today. If that's a topic that's interest, of interest to you, hi, sweetheart, um, someone's waving at me out there, uh, Please grab one, and it's a great way to just get information and be a part of the process, and also um, a great way to offer feedback and start a dialogue. So we definitely want that as a part of this. So we will keep you posted as things move forward, but that's where we are now, just sort of launching into it here post-Easter. Does that sound good? All right, family meeting adjourned, and now it is time for the sermon. Uh, We are, you guys ready for that? We are in, that's sort of half-hearted, but that's okay. We are in week two. We're talking about evil and suffering today, so I don't expect you to be too pumped. 
We're in week two of this series. We've launched called Wrestling with God, Believing God with Big Questions. And one of the questions that Pastor and Matt and I planned on addressing in this series, and it certainly came out through the the feedback cards that so many of you have filled out the last few weeks, is the question of evil, and in particular, the suffering it causes in our world. What do we do? What what do we uh, say? How do we respond? How do we reconcile? How do we maintain faith in an almighty, all-loving God in the midst of the suffering that we face and see all around us all the time? When the test comes back positive, when the child is taken from us too soon, when the call comes in the middle of the night, When the person we were supposed to be able to trust betrays us in ways that are unimaginable, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with suicide and Alzheimer's and car accidents and birth defects and mental illness or depression that just won't go away? Because friends, the reality is this, we need to be ready The reality is, whether we like it or not, someday it might be your kid. It might be mine. Someday it might be your husband's CAT scan. Someday it might be your friend's car accident. Someday it might be you. You see, someday is coming for every single one of us. For some of you, someday has already happened. For some of you, someday is happening right now now in this season but for every single person who walks this earth there is a someday and so we must all face this question who is our god in the midst of evil and suffering and this morning to tackle that giant question i want to look at a book in the bible that kind of takes it head on it's a book called job in the old testament and ironically it's a story of a guy named Job, and it's about the suffering he endures and the questions he asks and how the whole experience, how this whole reality of suffering in his world shapes and changes his relationship with God. So we'll jump right in. Here's how the story begins. And I just want to invite you this morning, if you'd like to pull out your Bible and turn to Job and try to follow along, you sure can. But we're going to be going through a lot of scripture. And so you are free today to just follow along with me on the screen. I am going to put the Bible passages on the screen. It is still the Bible, (laughs) even on the screen. So do what you like, but there's freedom. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owed... He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
So right off the bat, we get a picture of our main character here, this guy, Job. And the author tells us that Job lives in us. Apparently he was friends with the big green wizard from the neighboring country of Oz. They were like homeboys. No, and actually, in verse 3, it, we're told that Uz is a place that is where? It's, what direction? It's east. Uz is east. The question is where, east of what? East, I mean, because east is sort of relative depending on where you are. There's no you are here map. Actually, it's east of the people the author is speaking to. And he's writing to people from the nation of Israel who lived in... This is not a trick question. The people of Israel lived in... Israel. Very good. Okay. All right. Whew. Um, the author, one author I read this week, this is important. I point this out only because this story takes place not in Israel. It takes place to the east. It takes place out in the world. And one author I read this week said, this is meant to tell us that the problems of this book are the problems and struggles of the entire human race. You see, like we said before, all of us will have to face this question of what we do with suffering and God when they collide in our lives. We're also told in this opening section a bit about Job's life, that he's a good, pious, faithful individual, blameless and upright, it says. He feared God and shunned evil. He'll have nothing to do with it. Job is a family man who has done nothing wrong. But the truth is this, trouble is coming, trouble is coming to us, and soon, us will become a place where really bad things happen to a really good guy. And friends, what the author wants us to understand about this story is not just that suffering occurs, not just that suffering is out there, we all know that, but that from Job's perspective, suffering in his life comes from God, and it comes without warning or explanation or any justification at all, and that's his tension. Continue the story with me in verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Okay, pause right here. Right here in verse 6, there is kind of a shift in setting, and I want to talk about this for a second. Job is written actually very much like a play. If you think of it kind of like a play, it'll help you understand it a bit. It'll give you some deeper connection and meaning. It's a play, except for in this play, there are actually two stages. There's an upper stage... And there's a lower stage. On the lower stage in Job, you find the people of earth. You find Job and some of his friends. The lower stage is earth. But then there's an upper stage. And the upper stage is where God and the angels and in this opening scene, Satan are. The upper stage is, very good, heaven. We're to be bold over there in the student section. I'm just going to start talking to you guys now. Okay. So, yeah, so we have this upper stage heaven, this lower stage earth, and, and as an audience, as the audience of this play, as the readers of this book, we can see both stages. But here's something important to note. Job and his friends, they can't. Job and the characters on earth can only see what's happening on the lower stage. And this is something that will prove to be very frustrating for Job, and that's purposeful. 
Because there's something that's frustrating for you and me in the midst of our suffering is the same thing that's frustrating for Job here. When we face suffering, it is often difficult for us to see what's going on in heaven. What's God's response? What's his role? What's happening up there in the midst of my pain down here? Job can never see that and it drives him bonkers. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, we're back on the upper stage now. Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God's pretty proud of his boy here. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well. Then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right. This is sort of like the plot thickening here. The gauntlet has been thrown down. And here is essentially what Satan says to God. You can just hear him sort of accusing the great accuser, right? Here's what Satan says. He says, God, Job only loves you. He's only faithful. He's only obedient because you take care of him. Because you protect him and bless him and help him. The only reason he is your faithful servant is because he gets something from you in return. Last night, my wife asked me to run to the grocery store and I said in response, I would love to run to the grocery store for you if you would iron my shirt for me. I had this gray shirt that I wanted to wear today that was not at that time ironed. And Amy's response to this was, no, no. No, actually, she said, no, this isn't quid pro quo. I don't want to trade. I don't want to scratch your back and you scratch mine. I just want you to do it because you love me. <laughs> now, guess how that played out? That's right. I ironed my own shirt. <laughs> I can iron. I got ironing skills. I didn't really want to do it. I was trying to get out of it, but I ended up doing it. Um, but that's, that, that very question, that very thing that she offered me, challenged me with is, is the central question of Job. It's that question right here in verse 9 that Satan asked. This is the question that drives the entire book. Does Job fear God for nothing? And the question for the author also goes out to you and me. What about us? What about you? Do we fear God? Do we love and trust God just because he's God? Or do we really only revere him so that he'll hook us up with a good, blessed pain and struggle-free existence. You see, in Job and in the entire Bible, really, suffering reveals the answer to this question. Suffering reveals something deep in our souls, our motivations. Why do we love God? What are we after? What does our relationship with Him hinge on? Is this just quid pro quo? God, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or is there something more there? Is there a deeper love commitment? That's the big question here. And what you'll find in this story is that there's some wonderful irony. You see, because for Job, down on the lower stage, suffering, when it comes into his world and in his life, it puts God on trial. How could you let this happen, God? 
How could you do this? How could you allow this for me? And now God is being indicted and he's being tested and he's being challenged by Job. Now in the lower stage, suffering puts God on trial. But what's happening on the upper stage and what we in the audience can see that Job can't is that actually in the midst of suffering, it's Job who's on trial. It's humanity. It's people. It's you and me who are being tested in the face of suffering, not God Do we love and trust God even when things get brutally hard? That's the real question, even though Job does not know that it is. See, in the Bible, suffering doesn't test God, it tests us. And this is not an easy thing for us in the midst of suffering because we're so tempted to point the finger at God and we will see in this story it is not an easy thing for Job. Because now Satan has been turned loose. And at this point, all that Job has, he loses. All of his material possessions, his oxen and donkeys and sheep, his servants are burned up with what's called fire from heaven, sort of indicating that God has at the very least allowed this, if not even somewhat caused it to happen. And then the final blow, Job's children are wiped out. In an act of God... A windstorm collapses the house in which they are all eating and drinking together and all ten of them are gone. Just like that. Verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Two very physical uh, demonstrations of extreme grief and pain. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Wow. That's that's quite a response, right? I mean, I'm not sure I could be in the same place. Job really does love God. Job really is truly a righteous man. If after all of this, he can say those words, even if they're forced. But friend, Satan's not done. And back on the upper stage, he goes to work again, listens to this accusation. Skin for skin, he says, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so now another layer of protection has been removed. And now Job and his his very flesh, his very health, his very body is now open season. Only one sort of screen remains. His life must be preserved, but everything else is open season for the enemy. Everyone's got a breaking point. Satan says, and God, we may not be there yet with Job, as it appears his pain tolerance is fairly high, but if you give me enough room to work, I can break this guy, and I will show you that deep down, what your relationship is based on with him is not what you think, God. Satan's going to work here. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. 
That is just a picture here of just complete and utter devastation, complete and utter brokenness. All that he had, all that he was, the great man of the East, reduced to a pile of ashes. Now, from this point forward in the story, we will actually leave the upper stage for good. We will not go back there. But before we continue, perhaps this is a good time to, to just say a few things, to just acknowledge a couple things about this story. And here's probably the main thing. The thought of God and Satan sitting up in heaven wagering about our most difficult places of pain can, at least to me, be an extremely difficult thing to swallow. Anyone else sort of read this story and think, man, God just seems a little callous here. He seems a little flippant. I mean, this is a good guy who loves him and serves him and he's just sort of like wagers away his happiness on a whim. Doesn't God care at all? And, and friends, I just have to say this. I am not sure this book is meant to say whenever you experience evil or suffering or pain, it's because God has gambled away your happiness on a bet with Satan. Not, I think, the point of this book. However, and this is a big however, don't miss this point. The sovereignty of God, the ultimate control that God has over the entire created universe and everyone and everything in it, combined with the reality of the evil and suffering we experience, are certainly put in tension in this book. They collide and they, they, they mess with each other and it is a hard thing to reconcile. And one of the things you're supposed to wrestle with in this book is this giant question, how could you, God? How could you do this? How could you allow Satan to do this to Job? How could God seemingly, so flippantly, allow this awful stuff to happen? If you're not asking that question, if you're not bumping up against it, you are missing it in the book of Job. And in the beginning, Job seems to be doing well, but then soon the voice of these questions begins to emerge and at the very start voice is given to these thoughts by none other than Job's wife listen to what Mrs. Job has to say verse 9 are you still maintaining your integrity curse God and die those are like the words that Mrs. Job offers him in the midst of this tragedy and a lot of people like a I take jabs at Mrs. Job here, but I think she's just being extremely transparent. I think she's saying, let's get real here, Job. I know how you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. You may be putting on a happy face, but let's be honest about what's really happening inside. Guys, how many of us need our wives to truly get in touch with what is actually happening inside of our hearts and souls? It's just kind of a wife thing. They just have that way of knowing and helping us express what's really happening in here. That's what Mrs. Job does here. Don't you see how bad it is? Don't you understand what's happened in our world? You know, stop sugarcoating it, honey. Let's get real. Curse God and die. My wife has never said that to me before, and I'm super glad about that. Um, really appreciate you today, dear. Uh, you know, it's getting bad when your wife says that to you. And listen to Job's response. This is, this is verse 10. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You see, Job is still holding on to God here. He sees the reality. He feels the pain. But he's doing everything in his power to cling to his God and his Lord. 
even amidst this suffering. Verse 11. When Job's friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and Daniel the Larsenite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. Oh, that last one isn't in there. I just added that one. I just, you know, I was thinking this week, if this was me, if I was sitting in ashes and like sores all over myself, like who would I want to come to cheer me up? And of course I thought of Pastor Dan, right? Of course. Who wouldn't want Dan to come? He's like, if you guys don't know who Pastor Dan is, he's the gentleman who gave the announcements today. He's literally the nicest human being in the world, although Leanne may have some things to say about that. Wow. First service didn't clap for you. They just kind of went, eh, maybe, you know, like they know you better, I guess. No. Um, Dan is cool, but he did not make the Bible. There's only three friends. Uh, These three friends, they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. You know you're in bad shape when people don't walk in and go, oh, you look fine, you know. Uh, They can't even pull that off. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. A couple things from this section. First of all, the writer says they are going to Job to sympathize with him. And that that word sympathize in Hebrew actually describes the physical act of sitting with someone and just rocking with them, just rocking back and forth. You see this actually in people who've been through extreme trauma. Sometimes you'll see them, they'll just sit and they'll just rock. Or you'll see a mother often do this with her kids when they're in extreme pain um, or suffering, just to sit and rock. It's just a way to sort of like empathize and enter into the struggle And what's being described here about these friends is that their concern for Job is so great that they will sit next to him and take on his pain. They are going to actually enter in to his suffering. It says they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word. No coaching, no tips, no explanations. Husbands, take note on this. Just their presence. Just with you. You ever ha- have someone in a time of severe pain in your life? Maybe you're going through something deep or dark or difficult, and maybe a friend comes over well intentioned and they just begin to offer tips and advice and thoughts and comments. And it's just exactly the opposite of what you need. You just don't need that. It's just not helpful. First of all, all the things they can think of to fix the problem you've already thought of. Second of all, it's not helpful. Just come be with me. Just come sit with me. Just come relate to me. That's what Job's friends do here. In fact, this was such a tremendous act of compassion that it became a regular practice in Jewish life from this point forward. It's actually referred to, even today, uh, still, as sitting Shiva, and it literally means sitting seven. And when someone experiences a tragedy or a loss or pain, family and friends will come and they will simply be with that person for an entire week. They just kind of move into their world and just be with them. They just sit Shiva, sit seven. And, and for us as Christ followers, we have a similar call. Paul, Paul talks about the very 
Same kind of thing in the New Testament, except for here's how he says it to us. Here's how he says it to the church. Here's how he instructs us to live this out. Here are these simple words, Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Say this with me. Mourn with those who mourn. Say that again. Mourn with those who mourn. Something just so powerful about that. Just extremely impactful to not come in and fix stuff, but just to mourn, to enter in. And I guess the question, the real practical question today, friends, for you is, do you got any friends like that? Do you have people in your life that know you and love you and trust you and do life with you in such a deep and honest and transparent way that when tragedy and suffering comes to your door, they will just be there with you to join in your pain and mourn with you? Because I'll tell you what, friends, one of the biggest mistakes I've witnessed in people's lives over the years of doing pastoral ministry is so many people wait too long to do this. So many people, they don't cultivate those kind of relationships, those kind of friendships, those deep, honest, authentic, transparent kinds of connections. And then all of a sudden tragedy hits and they realize, I need those people. I need those kinds of relationships in my life. But it's too late then. It's too late. And sure, the church can come around and they can fill in the gaps a little bit. But friends, if you go into suffering without those relationships, you will largely have to face suffering on your own. Find those relationships now in preparation for down the road for when the suffering will come because it will come. None of us escapes it. Let's keep going. Chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. Down to verse 23. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. I have only turmoil. Friends, this is what's technically called not being in a good place. And in the midst of his suffering, Job is now struggling to understand God. He's asking all the hard questions. Is God the kind of person who sends evil, who actually hedges me in and traps me in this awful place? Is God really good? Can he be trusted? That's the question now that's being bantered around down on the lower stage. And over the next 28 chapters, Job will express a level of bitterness, anger, pain, and confusion towards God that is more than just a little honest And it's this honesty, this struggle, his sheer rawness with God that Job's friends ultimately cannot take. And so the same friends that came to mourn with him and sit with him and not say a word for seven days now begin to turn and they begin to rebuke Job and correct Job and feed Job their theology of suffering and why it's happening to him. Let me give you just a little example of this. This is Eliphaz in chapter 4 speaking to Job. He says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? 
As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. You see, one of the, 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 the great understandings and theological explanations for evil in Job's day was simply this. If evil comes your way, it's because you deserved it. If you're blessed, it's certainly because you've been obedient to God and you've lived a life pleasing to Him. But if you face trouble, it must be linked somehow to some sort of sin or shortcoming in your life. And the beauty of Job is that sitting in the audience, reading this book, looking at both stages from where we can see it, we can tell this is just not true. We see so clearly that this is not the case at all, that that Job's suffering does not come from some sin in his life that's secret or something horrible that he's done, but but it's a whole other reason entirely. And yet that's what Job's friends firmly believe. That's their theology and they're sticking to it. Listen to this in chapter 8. This is Bildad, another one of the, the buddies. How long will you say such things? He's talking to Job about Job cursing and questioning God. He says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And and then listen to this. Listen to these words. When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Think about that for just a minute. Because it's like a real guy and a real moment and real life. He's lost his children. All ten of his children are now dead and his friend comes to him and says it's because they sinned buddy they got what they had coming to them friends this is a real important point that just needs to be made in the middle of this message and it's about the kind of people we are when others suffer Because when people in our world face suffering, sometimes Christians respond with bad answers. Sometimes we say thoughtless things or spout generic Bible verses at people. Sometimes our comments in the midst of real suffering by real people can seem hollow or shallow or careless. Sometimes Christians have told people that they just need to have more faith or if only they believed more or if they only trusted God more or if their theology and thinking was just a little different then their pain and suffering could go away. And most of the time I know this is not because we mean to be pious or callous or unsympathetic. Mostly it's because we simply just do not know what to say in these moments. But friends, we've got to be real careful. One of, the, one of the messages for us in the midst of this book is we must learn how to give people room to wrestle with God in the way they need to. And that will never be neat or tidy or clean. And that's okay. Listen to what Job says to these guys at one point. This is profound and kind of his response to them. He says, Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend, forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Job is saying, you're the kind of friends that when things are going well and there's plenty and blessing, you're right there. But as soon as things dry up, as soon as there's a drought, as soon as things go south, then you're off. You're nowhere to be found and you're against me. 
their faithfulness, their encouragement in Job's darkest hour, they've dried up. And at the end of Job in chapter 42, God deals with these three friends. And here's what God says to him. He says, you blew it. You guys whiffed. Not only were you wrong, not only was your theology way off, but you weren't even close to the kinds of friends that I was looking for you to be. You go ask Job to forgive you, God says. If Job forgives you, if he prays for you, I will. If not, and now these guys are a little nervous because they've seen what can happen if you get on the wrong side of God, right? Luckily, Job is gracious. This is Job 42, 7. He, that's God, said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You see, Job's struggling. Job's holding on by a thread. Job is questioning me. He's angry with me. He's frustrated me. He's challenging me. But at least he's not perverting the truth of who I am. At least he understands who I am on some level. You guys have got it completely wrong. Your theology is messed up and you're thrusting it on him in such an evil way. You see, the point of this story, friends, is not just how will we deal with our own suffering, but it's the kinds of people God calls us to be when those around us suffer. We must learn to be people who give others room to wrestle with God in their pain. And that's what Job does. He wrestles with God. His, his wrestling is deep and thick. And to be honest, his comments are all over the map. If you read through this book, which I hope you will at some point, that's what you'll find. Um, you'll see this, by the way, in people who are suffering deep anguish or loss or pain. Um, they're just a little neurotic. Their, their, their thoughts and their emotions are all over the place. And that's what we see from Job. He sort of swings from, from different sides of the, of the pendulum. He says this in chapter 16. Listen to these words. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. And listen to how he describes God here. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. You see, for Job at points, God is his enemy. God is his opponent. It's him versus God. Now contrast that with another statement he makes just several chapters later in, in, in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You see, God is the enemy. God is his opponent. God is the cause of his pain. And yet God is the relief and his savior and his comforter all at the same time. It makes no sense, but that's because pain makes no sense. Suffering makes no sense. Evil makes no sense. One scholar I read this week said, Job's questions, Job questions God and he clings to God. He hollers at God and he hollers for God. But what Job really wants from God are answers. Job wants answers. He wants justice. He wants an explanation from God why all this has been allowed to happen. Chapter 23, he says, Even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find him, if I could only go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. You see, Job wants to talk it out with God. He wants to hash it out with God. He wants to get face to face with God and demand that justice prevail. 
that the right stuff starts going down. Job wants to take God to court. He wants to argue and defend himself. And in chapter 38, finally, finally, Job gets his wish. This is the climax of the story because God has now come down from the upper stage to the lower stage. The creator of heaven and earth makes an appearance down on the lower stage and now he's speaking to Job. Listen to what he says. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. You see, at the end of Job, God finally shows up. He finally responds. But he never answers Job's questions he never explains to him why he has allowed the suffering he has allowed and you would think you would think that has got to be so annoying so frustrating to job but in the end it's not in the end instead of the answers that he sought all along job gets something more something that he's never intended something far greater than just simple answers to questions through his suffering Job encounters and meets God face to face. This is Job 42.5. This is the climax of the book. This one verse right here. Job's words. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, Satan, as it turns out, way back at the beginning of the book, was wrong. Satan did not understand humanity. He did not understand God. He did not understand God's relationship with Job or God's relationship with us. Because even in the face of great evil and suffering, Job, we, people, human beings, mankind, can in fact cling and hold on to the love of God even when it does not seem to pay off for us at all. We can still love Him. Even when it doesn't make sense, we can trust Him and go to Him and turn to Him. You see, it's not just quid pro quo, not between us and our Maker. And you know, there's a story that I heard years ago. It's it's kind of a cheesy little story, but it's always stuck with me, this story, for years and years. Uh, And it's about suffering and what we do with it and how we reconcile it with God. And I'm not sure it answers all questions, but it's been helpful for me, and so I think I'd like to share it with you this morning as I close. It goes like this. A lady went into a beauty shop to have her hair worked on and her nails done. And as she and the beautician were talking, they began to talk about God. The beautician, the beautician said, I don't believe God exists. What do you mean you don't believe God exists, said the woman? Well, you just have to go out on the streets or turn on the evening news to realize God doesn't exist. Tell me, if God exists, would there be so many sick people? Would there be abandoned children? If God exists, would there be so much suffering and pain? I cannot imagine a loving God who would allow any, if not all of that. The woman in the chair thought for a moment, but she didn't respond because she did not want to start an argument in the store. And so the petition finished her job and the customer left the shop. 
Just after she left, she saw a woman on the streets with long, stringy, dirty hair, not groomed at all. She looked filthy and unkempt. So the woman turned back, entered the beauty shop again, and said to the beautician with confidence, You know what? Beauticians do not exist. How can you say that? asked the surprised beautician. I'm here. I'm a beautician. I exist. No, no, the woman exclaimed. Beauticians don't exist because if they did, there would be no people with dirty, unkempt hair like that woman I just saw outside. Ah, said the beautician. But beauticians do exist. But what happens is that people will not come to me. Exactly, said the woman. And she turned and left the store. Friends, maybe the message today for you isn't all the answers to the questions of suffering and evil in this world or even in your life. You know, reading through the cards this past week, so many of you turned in. um, Thank you for being so real, so transparent, so authentic about the struggles you're facing and the difficulties and the things that you wrestle with. And one of the challenges for me in this series that I have felt um, ever since we started was just the pressure to to answer those questions and fix those problems and make it all better. And I've just finally had to come to the place this week of saying, it just can't, I can't do it. A sermon can't do it. I I don't have an easy fix for all your pain and suffering and challenges. But I'll tell you what, friends, I do know this. There is a God in heaven who is in control, who loves you and longs for you to come to him. And he may not give you all the answers either, at least not here on this earth, but he longs for you to come to him in the midst of your suffering so that he might know you and he might love you and he might prove his faithfulness in spite of your circumstance and you might see him face to face because if you do, things will be better. They won't be all fixed but you'll have a place to put your suffering because if there is no God in heaven, if God does not exist, then then your suffering is just meaningless. It's just there. It just means nothing and it's just pointless. But if there is a God in heaven that you can bring your suffering to and you can hand it to him, then redemption and hope and healing are possible. And that means that suffering in the hands of God can have a plan and have a purpose. And you may not know what it is. You may just be like Job. You may never see the upper stage. But God's promise is this. I'm doing something beyond what you can see. So hold on. Hang in there. Keep walking with me. We can do this together. And maybe that's the message you need to hear today. God's saying to you, hold on, hang in there. We can do this together. So this morning, I want to give you some time. I want to give you some time to just sit and think about the suffering and evil and pain and struggles in your life or in the lives of those you love, the people around you, and to sit with it with God in this place. We're going to create some space this morning for you to do that. And I just want to encourage you, don't think about the afternoon. The afternoon will come. All the stuff that's waiting for you outside of these doors, it will still be there in 15 to 20 minutes when we leave. Now is your time to get before God and talk to Him about the real issues in your life. Allie and the team are going to come. They're going to sing a song. It's a familiar song. There's going to be some scripture on the, on the screen. I want to give you freedom If you want to sing, sing. If you want to read, read. If you just want to let the words wash over you, let them wash over you. If you just need to spend some time in prayer alone in your seat, do that. But when you're ready, come to the tables 
and celebrate this meal that reminds us that our God not only allows suffering, but that he took on suffering. We can trust him with our suffering because he has suffered the ultimate price and paid the ultimate penalty for us. Come to the table and remember that our God loves us and he meets us in the midst of suffering and that he's redeemed suffering. Take the bread, take the cup, declare that to yourself again, especially if you need to hear it. And then also, to add to that, there are going to be some some elders and leaders around the edge of the room. If you just need someone to pray for you or to pray with you or to pray about something in your life, go find one of those people. I know that can be an intimidating thing. I know that can sometimes feel uncomfortable. You can wonder if people are watching you. You know what? They're not. They're doing their own business because we've all got stuff in this area. Let me just challenge you. Take that step of faith. The Bible says that when when righteous people pray for us, there's healing in it. I don't know how it works, and I don't pretend to think that it's going to fix every one of your problems, but there will be healing in your soul through the prayers of God's people. And so find someone to pray for you. Just ask them quickly to pray for something in your life, and they would love to do that. So, So sit, pray, reflect, think, talk to God. Come to the table when you're ready. Find someone to pray with, and we'll continue in worship.